Never get so far ahead of your army that you look like the enemy. I once heard Kene Umayasiegbu quote this old saying in the context of the climate and environmental and social justice movement. And we often hear this, there's this urgency to act, but this cautions us. If we move too fast, we risk leaving people behind, or worse still, losing them completely. How do we make sustainability sustainable? In other words, how do we pace ourselves? How do we work at a rate of change that doesn't stress systems and people to unacceptable levels? Most of all, how do we make sure that everyone has a sense of agency and that change isn't being forced upon them? Kene Umeyasiegbu is an expert in sustainability and in corporate affairs. These are two words I don't normally think of in the same sentence, but of course they absolutely should go together. And Kene has done just that. He's taken his focus on environment, on food security and human rights, and taken all of that to where the decision-making happens. Kene was born and educated in Nigeria. He is currently, though, the Responsible Sourcing Director at Tesco, following an international career that spanned Brazil, Estonia, the Netherlands, and of course Nigeria and here in the UK, where he was recently named Black British Business Awards Business Person of the Year in 2022. As a leader in his field, I actually found him refreshingly softly spoken. In fact, This may well be his real strength. He doesn't pretend to have all the answers, but believes instead that the key to making the world a better place is asking the right questions in the first place. I wanted to take this opportunity to hear more about you. We've sat on this advisory panel for a couple of years now. I've heard you talk a lot about systems how to change them, you know, your work. But I wanted to get into what shaped you, like the early years. I know you grew up in Nigeria, but can you describe what your main influence, people, places, stories, culture, what was it? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Gillian. Where to start? I think the main things is, um, you know, like most post-colonial societies in Africa, Nigeria was and still is in transition, social, economic, political transition, And so, for example, my grandfather was the first in his family, so the first in my generation, to move from the rural area to the urban areas. And that came with quite a lot of social changes, social adjustments and so on. And he was the first in his generation, in my my lineage, to convert from animism to Christianity, for instance. And so my parents were born Catholic and baptized and then they grew up in a city where the the echoes of the culture they left in the rural area was still present and so they were educated How did that actually by, look? so it, it became a case where your neighbors became your extended family because you're used to living in this setting where the community is everything and so if all the community you knew were blood relatives and now you live in an urban area in a nuclear family no one was quite sure how to function and so your neighbors became part of your community, your faith group, and so on. So my parents were the first to get educated up to university level from both sides and and so on. So 
I think also Nigeria going through the political and economic challenges it was meant that a lot of us were sort of living at that border between poverty and, and some kind of comfort. And so for many people, it led to a lot of reflection and consideration of one's values. And I think my family wasn't any different. So I think in some way, those were some of the early. And then I went to study geology at the university. I mean, when you're a teenager, what's the basis on which you choose a course? I chose a course that I thought would pay me a lot of money because Nigeria's economy was built on petroleum. But as I studied, I became more exposed to the environmental impacts of the oil industry in the Niger Delta in Nigeria and the human rights impacts as well. And that actually had a really profound impact on me in my late teens and led me to change the course of my career. I changed my focus from petroleum geology to hydro and environmental geology. And I think set the course for the career I was to build um, okay. till, till today. So you've taken us up into the point where you've done your degree and your eyes have been opened a little bit more to, I guess, what's going on around you in Nigeria. Just describe that a little bit more, sort of Kenne, late teens, emerging adult, what are you seeing? Yeah, so I went to university in the early 90s and uh, around the same time, there, there was a lot of agitation in the Niger Delta region of Southern Nigeria. And that's still in public record and anyone can see. This is the part of Nigeria where the petroleum resources, oil and gas is found in the country. The communities who live there, Nigeria has over 150 different ethnic nations ethnic groups. And there are three that form the majority. There's the Hausas to the north, there's the Yorubas mostly to the southwest, and there are Igbos, which is my community, to the southeast. The Niger Delta community is a minority community, so not one of the three. That means that in a country where politics was still dependent on identity, they didn't have the political clout to win the biggest offices of the federal government. That means they didn't have control actually of their natural resources. And at the time we were under a military dictatorship. So the contract, the social contract was broken anyway. The military government didn't really care so much or went held to account about how they spent the money of the country. And you know, more than 70% of that resource came from petroleum resources from these regions. Um, in a joint venture with a major global oil company what that meant was that they didn't enforce environmental or social standards. Probably the standards weren't even strong enough. And so those communities faced decades and decades of oil spills, of, of what they call acid rain, which is, is a result of flaring. So at the time they would flare natural gas because they, they wanted crude oil. That meant you had those communities that had sometimes hundreds of chimneys constantly burning. So that means that the communities were constantly covered in soot. And when it rained, the rain mixed with the chemicals being thrown up by the flaring and would fall as acid rain. You know, if you had a car, the car would rust where you parked it. The land was unproductive and most of them were farmers and fishers. You couldn't go to the sea. If you did, you couldn't catch anything. Their livelihoods were shattered. There's no social security system in Nigeria. So they were thrown into destitution and they didn't have the political might to change any of that. And so in many cases, they took to protests and ultimately to acts of terrorism and sabotage of the oil installations. 
and the federal government, because this was such an important source of income for the country, and due to the military dictatorship, so weren't afraid of losing elections, came down with an iron fist. And one of the main leaders of the group, a poet, a social and environmental campaigner called Ken Sarawiwa, was arrested and tried at a military tribunal, even though he wasn't a soldier himself, and executed for inspiring riots and unrest. And that was, for me, the, the day we heard the news of his execution was a moment that changed me, it was a moment that I sat back and thought, what kind of country would I like to live in? What kind of contribution did I want to make? What kind of industry did I want to work in? And so, so that's how old were you at that point? I probably was, because I went to university a little bit later than my peers, I was probably 19 or, or 20 or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, when I went back, I think it was during a summer holiday or so, if I can remember, I, th I know that I wasn't at, at university at the time. It was a holiday or we were on a strike because we used to have uh, professors go on strike because of one thing or the other. So we're home. I was in Port Harcourt where my grandfather lived, where my mother was born, which is in the Niger Delta. So I was there and I could see young people protesting on the streets. And I remember when I went back to university, I decided to switch my focus from petroleum geology to hydro and environmental geology. So that was, it's, if, if there was ever a moment I could look at and say, this was a day that changed the course of the rest of my life, that would be the day, the day I heard the news of the execution of Skansar Weewa. Wow. Wow, I can almost feel that. So you've, you've reset your direction of travel following this moment. What happens next for you? Yeah, so there were a number of things I was curious to learn about. I was curious about what a more sustainable world, and I didn't use that word at the time, but the spirit was what, what were the alternatives of how the world could be organized. And I was really affected by, at the time, the narrative I'd understood was that the oil company that was in a joint venture with the Nigerian government did nothing. Uh, in fact, the accusations were that probably enabled the execution or, or maybe not the execution, but the uh, actions of the government because it was bad for business to have to deal with these protests and so on. I was very interested in understanding how people so far away could take a decision that had such a profound impact on the lives of individuals, of communities and potentially a whole country. So that that those sort of dual questions, how do you drive change towards the sort of world we wanted to see? How does an individual, a group of individuals make decisions so far away and affect the lives of others became the thrusts of inquiry that I wanted to explore. And I felt ultimately led me to a feeling that I needed to be influencing outside Nigeria because the offices and departments in Nigeria were mostly implementing those ideas. And I was curious to see the world. I wanted to see other developing countries to understand how they were thinking about their future. And I, I, I was working already, or I was a volunteer at the time, I was still a student for a leadership organization, a youth leadership organization called ISEC. And it gave me the opportunity to, to work as a, you know, in another, on exchange or as a volunteer in another country. So I chose to go to emerging countries, first to Estonia, where I lived for a year, and then to Brazil. And part of my inquiry was to understand how those countries in transition were thinking about the future 
that they wanted and how they were going about building it. But I was also interested in understanding how people exercise agency. How can one person exercise agency that can make a difference? I've ended up studying that as a, as a, for my master's degree at the University of Bath, personal agency, especially in sustainability. I was already working in the business sector at Cadbury at the time I went to study that. So that was sort of concretely what that led me to, to explore the world, to meet people, to explore those questions and to study it a bit more. So just to um, jump tracks a bit into, because you've mentioned two, well, two concepts, two words, which I think are really like need unpacking. The first one is sustainability. It's a little bit, for me, it's a word like eco. It gets used so much that it almost loses its meaning. What does it mean to you? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, as I said, I didn't start off using that word. It just became such an easy way to explain what I mean. So, sustainability, I mean, I'll go back to that. The first definition of sustainability I heard is still one that I return to because I think it's so valid. It's really about meeting the needs of the present generation without destroying the opportunity of a future generation to meet its own needs. If I were to think about it with, with my background as an African, the descendant of animists, it would be to, to live as though we borrowed the earth from, from our children, not inherited it from our ancestors. And so to look at it, to engage in it, with it, with care, with love, and as a, as a living system that we want to sustain or keep going for as long as possible. So bring into that another word that probably doesn't get used enough, in my view, when we talk about sustainability and environment and climate, and that's agency. Because what I see at the moment is very little agency in how our lives are being shaped to meet the challenges of a climate crisis, of a biodiversity crisis. What does agency look like to you and how can we have more of it? Yeah, this, I, I suppose one of the things I've found when I, I, I remember once actually, again, if, if I had to choose a moment and that's a, a minor one, but I was, when I lived in Estonia, I was asked to facilitate a uh, conference in uh, in Germany and before we started we spent a day or two as facilitators being educated on the cultural context of running a conference in Germany so they wouldn't respond in the same way that an American audience might respond give me a why yeah jump on the table no <laughs> more calm and all of that so that was quite useful and I remember being then aware of the cultural responses in, in Germany. And I remembered that at the end of the conference, the feedback we were getting would be non-issues in Nigeria. It's feedback of things that they could have fixed themselves, but they are so used to an, a system around them working so well that they didn't expect to have to do anything and society would function. I mean, there's something to say about that. But I felt that actually living in a society where everything works and where you feel like such a small part of a system and almost you're not needed to keep the system working actually have the effect of depriving people who grew up in, in technologically advanced economies of agency. Whereas growing up in Nigeria where, you know, you had the other extreme where the state was largely absent in your life, didn't play its roles, the roads didn't get fixed, the taps didn't run, all of that kind of stuff. 
you had to exercise agency on a day-to-day basis or you didn't eat, you didn't get electricity or you didn't, you know. So it became quite a natural way that I thought I ought to be able to engage with the world around me if I wanted the outcomes I cared about to materialize. So there is that bit that I didn't learn, or at least I didn't consciously learn. It was just a sort of a function of my environment. And then, but it could have been quite scary to then imagine that it's possible to apply agency on a global stage that I'd never really engaged with, but I was curious to see how it worked. Mm -hmm. And I guess my experiences in the leadership organization I was part of showed me that actually only a small percentage of people actually shape the world. The rest mostly respond or follow. And I felt maybe I could contribute to shaping at least those issues I care about in the world. And not so much as a protest, I think that has a role, that, that has an important role to play, but, but actually as a builder, if the protester creates the space for us to build, who will be the one quietly in the corner, not on stage, building the future that we want to see. And that's where I wanted to place myself. There's this kind of tension between, well, do you work from within an organization and change it from within? Or can you get more done from outside working more autonomously or maybe with something that sits across these brands and organizations? I mean, how do you square that up? Is it something that you have to wrestle with? Yeah, it's, it's, again, when I was younger, I was very curious about the United Nations. I was very, I thought I wanted to work there. And I remember, again, as part of this leadership organization, being at a conference and we had uh, UN sort of employees come to speak to us about a career in the UN. And I remember them saying something about the timelines it takes the UN to make decisions or to make impact and all that. And I felt I was probably too impatient for that sort of timeline. But I also got very good advice from an alumna of of the organization when I wanted to then move from the organization into a corporate job to work in sustainability. I had lunch with her and asked her, uh, Teresa is her name, and asked her to advise me on how I get get started in corporate sustainability. And she said to me, this was in the the noughties, 2002, I think it was. She said to me, sustainability is an area where lots of people have a lot of passion for but very few people have the capabilities or the qualification to work in. And and so I made a note to myself that, okay, I need to get the capabilities and the experience and I need to get the qualification. So I wanted a place to nurture my skills as well. You know, so I had these passions, I had these views, but they hadn't been tested. They, They had no experience to back them up or real life, anything. So Cadbury offered me the opportunity to do that. And, and I think, the, and I was lucky to to have a you know, pretty long career over six years with them and then managed, it went on to work for the Carbon Trust, again, pursuing that sort of deepening my understanding in the real world. I think I must admit Tesco has been the place where I experimented with a lot of the ideas that I thought would that change required. Some of that those ideas about agency and I've been here 10 years and I've been very humble to be able to bring some of those ideas and test them in the real world and see what works and what doesn't work and and have some results you know whether it's the you know switching the company to 100 percent renewable electricity which took me three years to achieve or rolling out the uk's largest network of electric vehicles charging points of 
getting industry together to do something around soy in Brazil, looking at innovations and all of that. So, so it has been a really important thing. And I remember Teresa's words to say, you know, before you can make the impact you want, you need either or both of experience and qualifications. And, and so I guess it, it's played its role. It's offered me that platform and I'm pleased with what it's given. The question that I will have to confront at some points is what next? And that's, that's, that's yeah. to your question, how do you square that? And I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Well, the what next probably leads to, I don't know if they still call it, but certainly when I was a young adult, people called the big brain drain, you know, sort of all the expertise and the skills leaving Africa. Is, is there a sense for you that your work here can transfer back? Or do you think that um, a different solution is required? And I'm thinking particularly of, and I'm going to give the credit where credit's due, a young activist called Bella Lack. I heard her speaking once and she was describing how, you know, what she felt was the right thing to do was to have like a patchwork of solutions that sort of like arise almost organically out of the sort of local culture, local environmental, climate, economic needs. And so we don't have just one solution fits all to meet all these big challenges, but, you know, we actually have solutions that allow communities to shape the way they want to look. So with that in mind, you know, how much of what you're doing here might transfer back to Nigeria or another country even? Yeah, it's a, it's a question I've been reflecting on for a lot of my career. And I think you're right. The brain drain question is still a valid one and it's still called that as far as I know. But if I think back to my classmates, to those who went to university with me who stayed in Nigeria, the brain drain happened right there in Nigeria. They never got matched to jobs where they could apply themselves, got to make that contribution or develop to the point where they could make that contribution if some of them did. But, it, you know, quite a majority of them in a country with very high levels of unemployment or underemployment. Um, and certainly my, in the field that I'm working in, the conversations that I wanted to explore were not happening in Nigeria are still not happening in Nigeria to the detail that I want. But of course, maybe the thing that I also remember is that I was too aware from my experience with the Niger Delta that the decisions that shaped those people's lives were not taken in Nigeria. And, and I think it's important that we have the reverse of the brain drain. And I've, I see a lot of that, a lot of my friends, a lot of my colleagues who've built careers around the world going back to Africa. My cousin, you know, for instance, who studied in, uh, in, in, in Seattle, studied in French universities and so on, lived and worked in Europe, he now lives in Kenya, working on a fish farm that is looking at food security and so on. So, and if a few of my friends have gone back to actually one of my friends is now serving the Nigerian government as a minister in the, in the president's cabinet. So that trend is also happening. But I also remember, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who once said that you want diversity across every level of American society. I'd say the same of the global community. If everybody exits the global stage to return to the country from which they originate, we end up that the framework against which each of those countries will walk to might not have the diversity that we want. So 
we do want people at the headquarters of companies who have footprints and impacts around the world to reflect those views of those communities as well. My journey might well end up taking me to Nigeria, to Africa, either permanently or working on specific initiatives or call to serve in specific areas. And I'm open to that. But in the end, I think wherever I am, whatever contribution I can make in shaping that world we want to see is the, st- is the thing that still drives me. Most of us have woken up to the idea that where and how we spend our money can be our loudest vote. But what about where we keep our money? Who we bank with? According to the Consumer Association, UK high street banks are amongst the worst culprits when it comes to financing fossil fuels, arms companies, and all the stuff we don't think of when we talk about positive change. Triodos Bank has been blazing a trail for the financial sector in ethical and sustainable banking for over 40 years. With almost three quarters of a million customers, it looks like there are a lot of people out there who want to know that their money is not propping up all the wrong things and instead supporting all the right things. Named eco-provider by which, Triodos refuses to lend to fossil fuel projects, focusing instead on renewable energy, nature regeneration, and community projects. Triodos' aim is simple, to be a safe and secure bank for your money while being totally transparent with what they do with your money. I honestly could not be happier to have them as a sponsor of If I Rule the World. I guess the thing that really I find fascinating being able to speak to you, you know, the sort of what I, the people I'm describing in the podcast is these are the students, the masters, the practitioners of system change. And I, you've, you've gone into some beautiful and very moving detail of your, the things that set you on the path that you're on now. But if just with a mind to maybe um, some of the younger people listening to this today who are emerging adults beginning their, their sort of journey into adulthood, what advice could you give them about what it takes to be a change maker and how to, be, how to sustain that path? It's a really good question. I can only draw from my experience. Obviously, I haven't studied this officially, mm-hmm. but I think some of the things that made a difference for me is... A, a network to the question you asked earlier, did you make this journey on your own or, 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 were you, or did you make it in community? I think the sorts of change that we need, that the world is crying out for, can be quite intimidating, can be quite depressing. It's easy to get into that cycle. And I think I'll go, and I, I'm gonna misquote him now, but he said something about being able to pause before we go from knowledge to despair to have that window where we hold hope that we can do something and it's easier to do it when you have a community of others with whom you're working i think the other bit is actually to understand the power of of young people young people everywhere and there are various levels of activism there is the activism of the streets which is important it's visible it's loud it's impatient and it can't often be ignored, but there's also the activism of the kitchen table, the activism of speaking to your parents, of speaking to your uncles, of those who right now can make those decisions. Very often I hear senior colleagues say to me, my daughter, my son asked me this question and I didn't have an answer to it. What do you think I should say? And that's quite a powerful group. And that's a power that I 
they, that they ought to realize and, and uh, to activate that. And then I think the next thing is patience, patience and the willingness to accept good if we can't get perfect. Because sometimes the current generation expect perfection from mere humans. And sometimes the steps we need to take on the journey might be a step of accepting the good on our pathway to perfection. Take the vegan movement, for instance. I think it's great if someone can stick with a vegan diet and get all the nutrients they need. But actually, we don't need the whole world to go vegan to, to achieve environmental goals. A 30% reduction in protein, animal protein consumption is enough. And so let's talk about those steps in between that the majority of people can make rather than that perfect step that only a few of us can make. Because in the end, it's as many people as we can get on that journey would make more difference than creating a cult of those who would be perfect because then we're creating a religion out of a movement that needs to involve everyone. And do you think... Okay, let me frame the question in terms of like where it's coming from in me. I was second generation Kenyan. So my family, uh, my grandmothers were from Seychelles. My one grandfather was from Sri Lanka. The other was from Trinidad. I was born into recently independent Kenya, into the sort of optimism and the energy of that time. And almost as I started school was when I hit my first kind of, I guess what I call an identity crisis in that I recognized that other people didn't see me as a Kenyan, an African Kenyan. And it really, I really, you know, that may cause a lot of suffering for me in terms of like having to understand where I fit in the world. But the, the, I guess the gift it has given me is the ability to almost read the kind of the room in terms of culturally, the context, the language even sometimes. And I, what I think is that quite often if for particularly for people who've grown up in what I call very Anglo-centric cultures, they almost like it's invisible to them, the amount of yeah. adaptation and assimilation almost that's required of other people. And I'm using these words deliberately because I don't think it is just about race. It, this, is, this is across all cultures. So because you've traveled, you've grown up in Nigeria, you've traveled and worked in so many countries, and, and now you're in sort of a multinational corporation, what value... Does, do you think that has to, well, how do you walk that line in terms of sometimes feeling like you need to fit in and other times thinking, well, actually, no, I need to bring something different to the table? Or do you not? Are you just Kenne or Mayasegable all the time? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, th I think the answer to the question is yes, right? So, in a way, I am always Kenne or Mayasegable all the time. But actually, I'm a spectrum. Everyone is a spectrum. I, I'm a different person with my parents than I am with my sisters. I'm a different person with my friends than I am at work. All of these things. These, and some of the, of the elements of that spectrum, I'm discovering it all the time. And I say to my friends, I don't actually know who I'd be if I became a billionaire tomorrow. That's another aspect of my spectrum that I haven't discovered yet. And some I never want to discover. I don't know how I'd react if I was a refugee, for example, and I never want to know, right? So these are all parts of me. And the experiences I've had have also been helping me explore and ex expose those elements of myself, going from a country where I was lots of different things, but never a color, to Estonia, where the best description you could give me was the black guy over there because I was one of maybe 30 black people who lived there in the noughties and so on. 
and understanding what it means to be a black person in a former Soviet country and then moving to Brazil and again being Brazilian, who, you know, everyone assuming I was Brazilian and I didn't speak any Portuguese. And these were all extending the range of who I was. And that came with a lot of pain, as, as, as you were alluded to, because of course, we're almost comfortable when we act unconsciously on what we know, the rules that we recognize and so on. But looking back exactly as you said, it's also enriched my identity and who I am, understanding how to relate to people. But one of the things I know, and I know it mostly through humor, is that, uh, and I once watched a documentary that said, if you spend five minutes in any place, you take a bit of that place with you and you, live, you leave a bit of you in that place. And that's so true for me in the experiences I've had. And I see it mostly in humor because I hear something and it sounds so funny because it reminds me of a conversation in Estonia, but I'm in the UK and people say, what's so funny? I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get it. And they say, no, no, tell me. And then you tell them and say, oh yeah, yeah, it's not funny. You know, because the context <laughs> is different. So, and I say that because that leaving a bit of you in everywhere and having bits of everywhere in you can sometimes come with some loneliness and, and, and come with some angst. And that's part of the sorts of the joys and the, and the lows. I think the most difficult thing for me was missing home a lot when I first moved abroad and traveling and not realizing how much I changed until I went back home and tried to reconnect with old friends and acquaintances and came away thinking, I don't feel connected to them anymore. I mean, the jokes were still the same. The humor was still the same. The things that we say to each other were still the same. And I've, it was surprising for me to say, actually, they didn't change, I changed. And some of those relationships, I had to mourn and move on because my values had changed, had become a little bit more complicated, a little bit more nuanced. But also a new community opens up to you of people who maybe think more like you. And I think in the end, I had to accept that that is what growth looks like. It's, it's in part shedding of old skin and discovering, discovering new communities. And it's still a journey that I continue today because sometimes my instincts might still be excited Nigerian and everybody say, calm down, mate, what's going on? And, <laughs> and, and I think okay, those experiences, those things that make me difference is probably my excuse to stand out and therefore express that which I can contribute. Because in a way, in the areas I work, most people are passionate about social and environmental justice just because they, they, they're good people, they've read about it, they want to do the right thing or ideologically they believe in it. And that's true for me. However, I also have relatives who are facing these injustices today. So it has an extra urgency, has an extra poignancy for me. And I feel I can contribute that to a conversation and I'm not shy to do that now. One of the first things I heard you say, very much in this format, we're on a Zoom call, plenty of other people on this advisory panel. And I remember you saying something, the context was about activism, urgency to act. And in, in a way, I think, you know, I imagine it's quite typical of you, very softly spoken, but you said about a Nigerian proverb, never get so far ahead of your army that you look like the enemy. And I was like, wow, the question to me, that was to the heart of it. Like, how do we make sustainability sustainable? How can we match what society, what people can tolerate in terms of the pace of change and give people agency 
where do you, because I heard you say that in 2020, where do you sit with that now? The world has changed yeah. a lot, right? Yeah, that's true. It's not actually a Nigerian proverb. It's, uh, I can't remember where I found it. It's definitely not from me, but I found it somewhere. I've been trying to find the source, but uh, when I do, I'll let you know. Um, Please. I, I still feel the same, especially working as I do in inside corporations, inside a, a big company. And I can contrast it with working in a non-profit. In a non-profit, we all had the same fundamental values. We all saw the world that we, not exactly the same, but what we aspired for was, uh, we're all similar. Whereas working in a company as big as, as, as Tesco, where I am now, you reflect a greater diversity of the views of society in which we, we live. People have different interests, different motivations, different drivers, different values. And yet you want to take all of them with you. You want to take all of them and engage them in this journey, especially when you get to some of the sustainability initiatives that have a reason or that we need to get to by shifting our lifestyle in a free democratic country where you can't just sign a law like China can and make things happen. How do you get people to go with you? And how do you do it quickly? And I don't think I have all the answers, but I know that when you start to move, you become so ambitious and so impatient, which by the way, I am sometimes, so I have to speak those words to myself. When you get so impatient, or when, I, when, I, when I'm in that mode is when I lose people the most. And then I have to course correct and come back and try and take them with me. Because I don't have the sort of power to will my opinion into being nor do I have all the ideas that one needs. So that's, that's sort of the phrase. I still use it to remind myself that I need to work with others. I need to move with them. And that requires a kind of resilience, a kind of patience and so on. But in that process, I also recognize the role that others outside my organization play. Part of it is to keep myself alive and alert to the reasons I joined this company in the first place. Because of course, having such a great welcoming culture as Tesco does can mean that sometimes you forget why you came in here in the first place. And so you, you find yourself, if you're criticized by a campaigning charity, you find yourself getting defensive, say, oh no, that's not fair. But you then think back and say, actually, they're playing their role in society. And if they play their role right, they actually embolden us internally to do more, to take, to, to respond more to societal aspirations around environment and social issues. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I think this a lot and I say this occasionally, there's 8 billion people on the planet. We're not all going to agree. We need a yes. plan for that. Exactly. Um, so with that in mind, Ken, this is how I close each, each episode with my guests asking, if you rule the world, what would you do? Gosh, if I, if I ruled the world, what would I do? I'll pull the best minds together to find a detailed description of what the world we want to see looks like, who will be the winners and losers in that world, and how do we develop a transition that makes sure that even the losers have buy-in because we make it easier, we, we compensate for what they lose and build a world that all of us can pull towards, if I rule wow. the world, yes. Very succinct. And just as a sort of nod to why, I guess, you are here, why we're all here, which is the natural system that we're part of, do you have, 
either a plant, an animal, a landscape, a habitat, something that I'm going to stop short calling a spirit animal, but your favorite and why? Yeah, it's the forest elephant. Most people know about the grassland elephants you see in Kenya and in Tanzania and South Africa. And they're doing better than they did. And that's great. Uh, still lots to do to avoid poaching and so on. But I I'm interested in forest elephants that used to, to be quite prevalent in West Africa, that used to roam across the coast of West Africa from Senegal all the way to Central African Republic. Unfortunately, the creation of nation states happened right in those territory and have occurred in such a way that the forests were cut up as each of those nations built their capital cities, blocking their path and the growth of populations around that part of the world also meant that those creatures were increasingly pushed into near extinction. You still have them in parts of Gabon and other parts of, but I, you know, the, the word for elephant, for the forest elephant in my native Igbo language is enyi, and it's present in almost every song, every battle song, every celebratory song, we talk about the enyi, the elephant, and yet no one I know in Igbo land has actually ever seen a forest elephant. In more than two generations, they disappeared from southern Nigeria. Thank you so much, Kenne. Um, Thank you. Incredibly lucky to have have had you for this time. And I really appreciate you sharing all that stuff. Yeah, heartfelt, real heart, heart and soul stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Julian. Great questions. Thank you so much for asking me on. The absolute most important thing or the biggest takeaway for me from that amazing conversation with Kenne was something that I think is counterintuitive. Most people assume that, you know, the way to operate in this world is to find your tribe and find your community and work with like-minded people. But in answer to probably the most important question I had, the thing I really wanted answered, the question which was, how do we make sustainability sustainable? What struck me was Kenne's answer that he has to work with people that don't share his vision of what a better place and a better world looks like. And that forces him to be patient, to make sure that he's listening to other people and that everyone has some kind of agency in the shared aim of creating a better world. So for me, that's kind of almost redefined what community actually means. Community isn't about all getting along and all agreeing. Community is being able to work with people you don't see eye to eye with, you don't always agree with, and frankly, you don't necessarily have to like. But nevertheless, you still learn to work with them anyway. So there you have it. Kene Umiasi Egbu's insights on how to make the world a better place. Now, if you enjoyed that, follow the podcast for more episodes like this. And you know what? Share this. Share this with someone you know who will really enjoy that. Get some value out of that. Get some insight out of it. Talk about it. Keep the conversation going. We'd love to hear from you. Email us on podcast at jillianburkvoice.com. And off the back of that conversation, take a few minutes, take a breather to think, if you rule the world, what would you do?